I'm not making this up. Who has a safety deposit box full of money and six passports and a gun? Who has a bank account number in their hip? I can tell you the license plate numbers of all six cars outside. I can tell you that our waitress is left-handed and the guy sitting up at the counter weighs 215 pounds and knows how to handle himself. I know the best place to look for a gun is the cab of the gray truck outside. And at this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Now, why would I know that? How can I know that and not know who I am? This is the Bourne Retrospective Series by Now Playing. Jason Bourne, welcome to the program. Hosted by Jacob. We are all trained to kill, but he was the best. Stuart. He's seen things. He knows things. And Arnie. They don't make mistakes. They don't do random. There's always an objective, always a target. This podcast may contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Is it all let me notice? You never wanted to before. Listener discretion is advised. This is not a drill, soldier. We're clear on that. This is a live project. You're a go. We'll see you on the other side. Today we're discussing The Born Identity, starring... Not Matt Damon. No, not Matt Damon. <laughs> Richard Chamberlain. It's almost the same thing. <laughs> It's the one that people really want to hear about. Jacqueline Smith, Anthony Quayle, Donald Moffat, and Denholm Elliott, directed by Roger Young. This is your born podcaster, Arnie. Stewart in L.A. And this is the host that's managed to avoid the 20th century, Jacob. You skipped right into the 21st with podcasting and... <laughs> Speaking of the 20th century, what the hell is this? We decided we were going to do Jason Bourne. And I was like, yeah, Jason Bourne. I, it's, I'm it's i excited for the series. It's the series that made me no longer think of Matt Damon as a pompous douche. I was really jazzed to be doing some more action, kind of like Mission Impossible. And then Stuart says, and there's a TV movie, huh? Oh, <laughs> the shoe is on the other foot this time. Not so excited to do television, are you? Mm-hmm. I'm sure many people would have been happy that we skipped this, but I just want to say right now, this was a big hit, and Richard Chamberlain was a big star in 1988 if you love TV miniseries. You guys know Richard? Thornbirds? Shogun? Shogun. I remember watching Shogun with my dad as a kid. I remember Shogun being on. I know Richard Chamberlain from a handful of movie roles, like I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay, I'm sure he'd be pleased to know that. His later work matters just as much as his early work. He was on the TV series Chuck. I mean, I, I know of him. But I can't say I ever went back and watched any of those old miniseries, despite how beloved they were when I was, what, six? Yeah, it should be worth pointing out, the second biggest miniseries of all time is Thornbirds. What was number one, then? Roots. Okay. Yeah, Roots is still the big one. But, yeah, Thornbirds, 35 million people, that was 60% of the viewing populace in the world. That if you had a TV on, chances were that over 50% you were watching Richard Chamberlain in Thornbirds. And so... He was one of those stars that kept trying to 
take that success from TV and go to the movies, but he'd always wind up in crap like King Solomon's Mines with Sharon Stone <laughs> and Alan Quarterman. You know, it never worked out for him. Much like Tom Selleck, I feel like he was a TV actor, always failing to prove he was big screen material. Yeah, when looking him up, I saw a lot of Alan Quartermain stuff. I'm like, I cannot escape Quartermain this year. I remember from our discussion of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, you haven't seen those treasures, but let them stay buried. Please, <laughs> trust me. They are awful, awful, awful Indiana Jones ripoffs, and he is not good in them. But it explains why you would be thinking of him in an action movie role, despite the fact that Richard Chamberlain is 53 years old when he is undertaking this part. And it's also worth pointing out that Born Identity is a huge book to be brought to the screen. You know, I feel like I, I might be the newbie here. I've seen the first couple of Matt Damon ones. I had not seen this TV show before he had to watch it, but I think I knew they were based on a book. I, I did not know it was a huge series, and I definitely wasn't thinking Richard Chamberlain after I'd seen something with Matt Damon doing action. No, I exactly thought the same thing. I was curious, did Matt Damon skew this role young, or was Jason Bourne always supposed to be middle age bordering on retirement. Did you know it was a book series? Oh yeah, absolutely. I've considered reading them. I guess you have to tune into Books and Nachos. <laughs> yeah, I have covered the ones written by the creator Robert Ludlum. He wrote three. Another guy has gone on and written a dozen more that I'm not covering. But if you tune in over at Books and Nachos, I'll be talking about Born Identity, Born Supremacy, Born Ultimatum, as they came out in big best-selling huge, thick airport novels. And again, this was a big get. This could have gone to the big screen, but they had trouble with Ludlum. They had done two movies for the big screen that had totally flopped. And the feeling was that he was just so dense with his storytelling, having so many characters and subplots, you just couldn't condense it to two hours. You needed the TV miniseries format to really flesh it out and do it justice. But they had made in 1983 Osterman Weekend, which I went and watched, and it truly is terrible. It's kind of like the big chill, but with Soviet spies thrown in there. It's like a friends getting together and finding out that they're doing espionage. And then there was Holcroft Covenant, which was some Michael Caine flop. He had many in the 80s. I didn't bother with that one, but they just weren't working on the screen, but they were selling like hotcakes. So this was the experiment to see if Ludlum would work on ABC television. And what year were these books written? Were these like 60, you know, beginning Cold War, or 80s when it was coming to an end? The first book was written around 78 and got published in early 1980. And the second one would have come out two years before this miniseries. So they knew it was a series. And the third book came out in 1990. And around this time, I remember, though, so many novels being adapted into miniseries. It was just the thing to do, especially with big books. People had always said that the movie wasn't as good as the book. I don't know if that still holds true 30 years later, but that was the rhetoric back then, but I'm just gonna say that by and large, sure, you can fit more plots in when you have more hours, but all of these things are done on a television budget. I watched some of them back in the day, and by and large, they were god-awful in my mind. I, admittedly, I was ta I'm talking I'm 10 to 14 years old, but I thought they were just incredibly dull compared to the novels that were often exciting. I don't know what you're talking about. They had a lavish budget. Uh, Richard Chamberlain received $700,000 to play this part. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'll say this, it's shot on location, like, they went over to Europe. It definitely is. Yeah, no, they, they put a lot, for a TV movie, this was put on sweeps in 88 Mother's Day. They were really gunning to have another huge hit. In perspective, compared to Shogun, Thornbird's heyday, this made about half the audience that those did. But it was still a big hit. It came in second. It's worth pointing out that when it debuted Sunday, Mother's Day, it was running against something that NBC was calling Something Is Out There, an alien cop space buddy movie about a (laughs) shape-shifting E.T. who's murdering people for their vital organs. Does this ring a bell for you guys? Nope. (laughs) I have no idea what it is, but it was like gruff L.A. cop paired with sexy space alien... I think it was a pilot to a show they didn't greenlight, but it did great ratings. It was also a miniseries. So on both nights of airing, Bourne lost to <laughs> Something Is Out There. So go figure. And only did slightly better than Murder, She Wrote. I think that, you know, it definitely... All the networks, because there wasn't really the cable options, you know, that was a new thing that was happening. Most people watched three networks. Okay, there was Fox, but they definitely were losing the night. They had Tracy Ullman and 21 Jump Street. So they finished in the cellar dwellers. But ABC, NBC, CBS, if you watch television, chances are those were the channels you were watching. Yeah, very different time. Very easy to get 50% of the audience when there's only three channels that matter. Although, I'll say Fox deserved more than it was getting when it was running Alien Nation against this. But yeah, taking this Jason Bourne novel and putting it on television, though, again, I'm a fan of the Matt Damon Bourne films. I think about them, I think of car chases and fast-paced action and all of that kind of stuff. So to... Try to see it done by Richard Chamberlain, who is not exactly a skilled martial artist, despite how much his character keeps telling me he knows judo. Shogun, come on. Yeah, he's known for this. He was Alan Quartermain. He's too old then at 53. He's got to take his arthritic (laughs) medicine. Well, it's also worth pointing out that we think about Bourne in a certain way because of that Matt Damon movie. I would say that that movie at this point is more popular than the book's that it sprung from and are only loosely based on. I'll talk about that on Books and Nachos. But Matt Damon, for many reasons, his story is not really going to follow the original book. This movie does a credible attempt at condensing a very big book and keeping all those storylines. It's much more faithful. And I think that, you know, that's what they were going for in 88. But in 2002, when Matt Damon was taking over, they were thinking, let's make an action franchise like Mission Impossible, but for Matt Damon. And so it was just a different impulse, and they were far less faithful to the source material. That is what I had read before watching this, is that this one is an adaptation of the novel. And given that, it is going to be shocking when we review the real Jason Bourne film next week, how (laughs) different it is. There are some similarities but not very many (laughs) yeah from what i remember yeah this goes off in a different direction at some point right and again as you pointed out jacob it was written at a very different time the cold war was happening people didn't have cell phones you just the world was so much different in the early 80s than when they were shooting that movie 
20 years later. So by necessity, I'm not going to judge the Matt Damon movie for being different. I understand that it had to be. But what's interesting about covering this movie, maybe the only thing interesting (laughs) about covering this movie is that it will try to honor the source material and it's made within eight years of its publication. But it's kind of hard to get. I ended up, I found a hidden treasure about an hour away from me, this massive used DVD store that actually had this. It's now out of print, but it did get a official DVD release. I watched it on YouTube. It's split up into (laughs) 10 parts. (laughs) Me too. As far as I know, it's still up there, but act fast, kids, because you know how they like to take them down. (laughs) I tried watching it there, but it seemed like they lost a couple of frames, seconds, scenes in between those segments. (laughs) I wouldn't want to lose a frame of this baby. And I couldn't turn off the subtitles when I was projecting it on my theater, so I like... No, I those need subtitles were permanent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I needed a DVD of this. So yes, I own this. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky you. Yeah. See you on Amazon. How much are you selling it for? It's out of print. It's got to go for hundreds of dollars. It only cost me eight at this used store, whereas on Amazon, the cheapest was around 40. Hmm. There are born fans who are completist. I can sympathize with their plight, if not think this movie is worth $40, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah. Why don't we get to a plot summary first? Make it simple. And uh, then we'll get into this miniseries. Arnie? Making it simple is not that terribly difficult. There's not a whole lot of plot here despite three hours. In a small village in France, a man played by Richard Chamberlain washes ashore, unconscious, shot, and bleeding. He's dropped on the doorstep of drunken surgeon Dr. Jeffrey Washburn, played by Denholm Elliott. The man is nursed back to health but has amnesia, and Washburn found a small microfilm under the man's skin. But the man has flash memories, which, when combined with current news reports, leads Washburn to believe the man may be an assassin. When two strange men in the village recognize the unknown man, he's forced to flee. Following the clue found under his skin, he goes to Zurich, where the film indicated he had a bank account holding $15 million. And on the account, he learns his name, Jason Bourne. But some at the bank try to attack him, and while fleeing, he takes a hostage, Canadian economist Marie St. Jacques, played by Jacqueline Smith. Smith escapes to get the cops, but ends up with the men trying to kill Bourne, and with him captured, they try to rape and kill her as well. Bourne escapes and saves Marie from the rape, so she helps him on his quest to discover his identity. They follow the trail to a bank account in Paris, and to a dress shop, and it's convoluted and we'll get into it, but they slowly uncover the truth. Jason Bourne is in the employ of a secret CIA division, Treadstone 71 which I always think sounds like a Michelin brand. <laughs> yeah, I have a my car right now. <laughs> That's Firestone. So, but Firestone has good treads and I don't know. <laughs> Born was an assassin sent to flush out the mysterious evil assassin, Carlos, who really needs to work on that brand and Carlos does not strike fear. Well, don't call him the Jackal. He's got a single name though as an assassin. That's a big deal. He's the Madonna of killing. Yeah, that isn't his name, but we'll get into it. So Bourne tried to show up Carlos with a series of high-profile murders. But digging deeper into Treadstone, Bourne encounters Treadstone leader David Abbott, played by Donald Moffat. Abbott reveals, while dying, that Bourne's real name is David Webb, and he was raised as Abbott's son. The real Jason Bourne, as if there aren't enough alternate identities here, was a sadistic killer. 
When Carlos needed to be taken out, Treadstone had the real Bourne killed, and David Webb underwent plastic surgery to look like Bourne. But in Treadstone are some traitors that murder the other members and frame Bourne. So Marie and Bourne follow the trail further, involving a French general and his deceiving, cheating wife, and finally back to Treadstone's New York headquarters. There, Bourne faces off and kills Carlos, clearing his own name, and looks forward to an uncertain future with his still-missing memories as credits roll. Now, when this thing starts, the mom jeans and the sweaters all say it's 1988, but... Film quality, score, the grammar, the the vibe that I'm getting feels like this is a movie that came out 10 years prior. Am I wrong? This feels like a 70s movie that somehow wound up in 1988. That's why I asked the year the books came out, because I was wondering if they're trying to go for a certain vibe. I mean, come on, we started in a bathtub with a toy boat. Like, this <laughs> looks cheap at the beginning. I agree. I was surprised when you said the book was written in 80. This movie feels like a 70s movie, and... This plot feels somewhat Manchurian candidate, post-Watergate paranoia type stuff. So yeah, it seems like the book came five years too late in the movie 15. No, no. I Like I said, he wrote the book in 78. So those were the times to be thinking about those things. It didn't reach publication. He takes a long time to do research. It just takes him a long time to write the books, I think. But it came out in very early 1980. It should be thought of as a story that was hatched from the conspiratorial 70s though and i think that they went with that vibe that it's surprising that there are no young people in this there is no parachute pants come on there's a bunch of kids that he's gonna do a rocky jog with later (laughs) those kids are not in the 80s i don't know where they got them some village that hadn't learned about the 80s yet but uh, the surprise is they really aren't going for a youth audience i can't think of too many spy movies that don't throw a young character in here but the director's name robert young he is the only young thing about this no this is an old cast i thought maybe because it's europe it doesn't look 80s i don't know what europe looked like in the 80s maybe this is period specific if you'd grown up there duran duran aha see my mind went to the james bond films of this time in fact when he goes to zurich everybody calls him bond bond And I'm like, are they really trying to just say he's Bond? But I'm thinking of the Roger Moore films. There was nobody really too young in those. Roger Moore versus Christopher Walken and Grace Jones. Yeah, so I was not missing parachute pants and loud clothes and mall bangs. I mean, Richard Chamberlain can at least be happy that he does look much younger than Roger Moore did in View to a Kill. But by this point, by the time this movie's coming out, uh, Living Daylights had already come out. They had moved on to Dalton. And so... Yeah, I did comment to my wife. I'm like, can you believe Nirvana is going to break three years after this film? Like, it doesn't feel like it. (laughs) It is strange in that way. But again, TV is less hip, ABC. And again, I forget because I never really watched his stuff, but Richard Chamberlain would be a big get. The fact that he's 53 wouldn't phase his target audience. The people that had loved Thornbirds were expecting to see that in a spy version. And they may get that. I don't know. Have you seen the Thornbirds? Because I haven't. Is this the Thornbirds? No, it's about like a priest. Like it's a sudsy romance. I don't really, I haven't watched it. So 
So this is like the Thornbirds. Yeah, I think that there are <laughs> Thornbird elements that they put in here, although they are exist in the book. Again, I want to say they've done a pretty faithful job of keeping what was in the book. Until you get to the last half hour of the second night, I would say almost everything that happens here, more or less, is following straight out of the book. So I take it nobody got to the part where it was different. The last half hour of the second night would be a long road to hoe. <laughs> but amnesia. We need to talk about the real hook of this. I think the reason why this is Ludlum's most famous favorite story is people really dig this concept. And it is that, yes, a spy on a mission loses his memory and has to find out who he is. We only get a couple seconds to see him as the spy. You know, yeah, he's on that toy boat, shot in the head, falls in the water, way down, way, yeah, way, way down. With those bad kelp effect, like, oh, <laughs> it's so bad looking. Oh, boy. I don't know what's worse, though, the toy boat he's falling off of or the backyard swimming pool he's drowning in. <laughs> yeah, but... He does surface on this French little town, Port Noir, I, I, kind of a on-the-nose name there, but uh, is brought to Denholm Elliott, who you might remember from the Raiders films. Strange thing about Denholm Elliott is I'm watching this and I'm like, who is that guy? I know I've seen him in a lot of stuff. I never knew that Marcus from Raiders was also the butler from Trading Places until this moment. But no, he's great in Trading Places. And yeah, I mean, of course, as Marcus. And I never realized I'd be seeing film actors in this. That did help <laughs> up the quality a little bit. I'm actually more excited for him than I am for Richard Chamberlain. You, you know, I did kind of get the Bond vibe out of this film. But like you said, Stuart, I like this amnesia hook. It's what I remember from that Matt Damon one. Like, James Bond super spy wakes up and doesn't remember he's James Bond type of story. Like, mm -hmm. I think it's a good hook. They're going to go through so many twists throughout the story. I'm going to get lost. But initially, I like what they're doing. Yeah, I think that it is just compelling. Far-fetched, and you have to be willing to go with that. I mean, we really shouldn't talk about logic too much when talking in this movie. It's unrealistic, but I do think it's a really fun idea of finding out who you are and finding out you may be a killer. What will haunt this amnesiac for much of the movie is that he believes that he is someone named Jason Bourne who might actually be a well-known assassin named Carlos. And we get that even early here in Port Noir, as he's restored back to health, he's hearing these radio broadcasts about how Carlos has assassinated an ambassador from America, and how, you know, he has these visions of a woman and child burning. But he didn't hear the news report. For some reason, Denholm Elliott's doctor is the one who hears that that Carlos is being hunted for. So he comes in while the unnamed man we'll call Born is shaving and says, does the name Carlos mean anything to you? <laughs> well, yeah, I think I my cousin's name, Carlos. I'm not even joking. I was thinking about your cousin. That snooty <laughs> film snob. <laughs> Yeah. Here's the thing about Carlos is that Ludlum was writing very specifically about Carlos the Jackal, a very real killer from the 70s. And he's playing off the fact that he was a wanted assassin and really feeding into the lore of him being the FBI's most wanted man. So they were dealing with a real live figure that anyone in the 80s would be very familiar with. And as of 1988, was still not caught. They could have used him, but because they're actually going to decide to 
to give a happy ending, spoiler alert, I'll just go ahead and get there. They're going to kill Carlos. I guess they felt like they needed to fictionalize him more and separate him from any real life figure. But these scenes in this French village with Denholm Elliott are actually my favorite in the entire movie. Denholm <laughs> Elliott is a drunken doctor. We're supposed to get this because he's asleep with a full bottle of scotch next to him. I would think if he's a good drunk, it would be an empty bottle of scotch next to him. But he's has killed two people on the operating table and Bourne is his path to redemption, I guess. I mean, we never see him after Bourne leaves. Yeah, he'll, he'll never come back. <laughs> Once we leave Port Noir. We'll find out that this character will wire him a million dollars as a thank you. But that is the style of Ludlum, is that he likes to have lots of characters that meet Bourne along the way and kind of help him in the moment, but don't necessarily come back and have a complete story arc. That there, There's just a lot of peripheral people that join the show and then drop out. And I'm good with that. I think it adds a little sense of realism, dare I say. It wouldn't necessarily make sense for this doctor who randomly had this body dropped on his doorstep to show up in the third act and haha i'm carlos all along or some bullshit like that <laughs> that's a good one <laughs> but i enjoy these scenes i think that the two actors have good repartee i think that there's a good hook here as he's having these flashbacks of this asian child and he's doing a run down the beach and really nursing himself back to health and little glimpses of memory coming back it does have me hooked I would definitely stay past the first commercial break into the second. <laughs> Which is where this, yes, actually stops. We leave Port Noir. We find out that he has, for reasons that I've never understood, including reading this book, he has a microfilm slide inserted into his hip. Uh, that has a Swiss bank account in it. I mean, I'm sure we all will in the near future. They're talking about chipping all of us. But back in 88, this was unheard of. I actually did think it was a microchip when we first saw it. I had forgotten about microfilm. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the Apple Pay where it just holds the payer next to my thigh. But <laughs> it is kind of strange that he'd have that there and not just memorize the bank account number or something. But yeah, we need a clue to get him out of here and... I'm surprised how fast he does leave. Two strangers see him walking and start to flee. He chases them down and learns he's a badass fighter in best 80s mm. action show style. No, no, this isn't even 80s standard. This Best Richard Chamberlain can do at 53 standard. <laughs> I'm thinking, though, like A-team kind of punches. Roundhouse punches and overdone effects. Pah! kind of stuff. He's not qualified for this. I just want to put it out there. Everyone is always telling the character in the book, you look about 32, 33. Richard Chamberlain looks every bit his 53 years here. He does not have the skills. He does not look wounded. You know, another thing the doctor says when he examined him, you're covered in all these scars. You look like you've had a rough life. I'm like, we have ample time to look at his shirtless body, let me tell you. <laughs> and there is not a mark on the guy. And the other thing we're told, which I again, I think was an interesting hook that I don't remember being in the Matt Damon version is that he's had plastic surgery, that his face is different than he would remember it. Yeah, I don't remember that either. You talk about his body and his face and everything, and you know what I got off of him, though, was really soap opera star. That's what I'm feeling. You know how soap opera stars are sometimes older than they should be because they're playing for an older housewife audience? 
Well, or they were young when they started in 1972, but they've been on the damn show for 30 years and keep snipping. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely that quality. Yeah, but the ads still try to play them up as if they're the hottest young thing, like they're Taylor Lautner, only 62 years old. Sure, yes. I think that's a good peg for Richard Chamberlain. I think he would make an excellent soap star. <laughs> I think he's a pretty lousy born. I'll just go ahead and say it. I really don't get any of his angst. I really don't get any sense that he is a danger or threat to anyone. No, and that's going to be a problem as the movie goes on. But at this point, I, I'm pretty much like you, Arnie. I'm, I'm willing to sit through the first commercial break and go to Zurich and, and see what's waiting for him at the bank. And again, these are real locations. I think we should ought to applaud them having the budget to really go. Every place that they say they go, they actually went to that place and, and featured, you know, the best of it. I think this looks good. And you feel it. I. I had to look that up because there's scenes with the Eiffel Tower. There's these scenes in Zurich. I'm like, there's no way television went there. I barely believe they sent family ties to France, let alone Richard <laughs> Chamberlain. So they sent family ties to France. Tina Yothers went to France. <laughs> Maybe it was England. It's been 30 years. But yeah, it, it, Facts of Life went to France. They were doing all these things on NBC. So... I was really impressed, though. They It makes it almost a travelogue. They show you the sights as he goes. It's I wish the colors were more vibrant. This is 80s television for you. It's kind of muted. But it's the most authentic thing about the entire film. Everybody is cast wrong. Every action machine is filmed <laughs> wrong. But the sets are great. Yeah, well, they're not sets. Yeah, that that is really the best I could say about it, is that it's shot on location. And it looks good. These buildings. Yep. Yeah. It's an Oscar-nominated cinematographer filming real locations. It should look good, but it also looks like TV. I, the, the sadness for me is that even though the image quality is strong and I'm believably transported there, I don't feel like this director has the freedom to kind of do the cuts and the movements that we expect from a movie. Keep in mind, back in 1988, people really didn't even know how to use their VCRs. So you had to make the story slow enough that people can pop in here. They can just kind of catch up with what's going on. You can't make it move too fast. And I think that's a problem. One thing I notice is there's a lot of establishing shots that go in a long time. Like when Bourne washes up on the shore, we're going to watch a crab slowly walk by his face. I love that though. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a mood. That was a mood seller. Don't not ding that one. But I agree. <laughs> there's just a lot of shots of bridges and banks. Yeah, and, and just cars driving along the road. Just It's like, wow, you, you just need to do one of these to establish. We don't need seven establishing shots. Yeah, it feels like filler. I was actually, my mind was wandering a little bit during some of these scenes. And I started thinking about how much more difficult it must be to make television than to make a movie. Because in a movie, yeah, you want to have a reasonable running time. But if your movie's 110 minutes or 117 minutes, nobody's going to kill you. But with television, you've got to meet your minute mark. You've got to be to the moment between commercial breaks. You have so many minutes before the commercial, so many minutes for each segment, so many minutes for each night. And then I realized that a lot of these establishing shots, maybe they were slightly short. You know, and again, another compliment I can give this movie is the writer, Carol Sobieski, an Oscar-nominated writer. I feel like she has taken what is a gargantuan novel, 600 pages, and really shaped it so that, yes, every 20 pages she finds a good getcha that will make you 
theoretically hold on through the commercial break and come back to see what happens. She's found a way to structure what really is a wide traversing plot with a lot of extraneous characters and focusing it on the primary ones. I salute Carol on that. Let me ask you something about the writing then, because this board, you know, he's sleuthing. He's got to find out his identity. He goes to Zurich. He asks the taxi driver, hey, where, what are the nice hotels? The taxi driver names one that he kind of remembers. He's like, yeah, take me to that one. And then he goes to talk to the manager and the manager's like the usual protocols. And like board does that really like obvious thing. Like, um, well, why don't you tell me what the usual protocols are to make sure they haven't changed? Like, this does not seem like sleuthing to me. This seems like sixth grade, just really bad detective work. Maybe you shouldn't read the book then, because a lot <laughs> of these scenes are exactly how the character bumbles through. Here's what we know. He lost his memory, but he supposedly hasn't learned the things that the CIA taught him. He knows how to fight. He should know how to kill, how to... He knows all of the world leaders and yet I do not feel like if he knew his identity he would be very strong again I think that's performance even more than writing I just think that Richard Chamberlain looks lost in this part and he just isn't convincing it's those high arced eyebrows he has he always just looks surprised yeah he's got one yeah take on that and it is what it is but I can't say that it is compelling I want to know who this guy is, but I don't want to know Richard Chamberlain. I'm back to, again, Bond, though. This type of investigative thing is something that Bond would do when he went undercover. I'm thinking on Her Majesty's Secret Service type stuff when he's trying to be somebody he isn't. So... I'm going with this, and I actually am really enjoying this bank scene, and this is where we finally get a real bit of action. What happened in that <laughs> little French town pew, pew, wasn't pew. much, but... Here, he finds out he has $15 million. He decides to transfer a bunch of it out, a million to the doctor, a several million to France. And man, these bankers do not like it if you take your business elsewhere. They take it personally and start to beat him up. Yeah, there's a, a guy that looks like Squiggy in the elevator where we're told <laughs> they had to find someone even less tough than Chamberlain. <laughs> That's hard. To have him beat up. It is. Was Gary Coleman busy? <laughs> But yeah, who they get is just, yeah, why would that be bank security? And then the other guy is like has a gun, immediately starts shooting him in the lobby. It's totally cray-cray. And kill somebody in the, just a gray coat. He's like, that guy has a gray coat, let me shoot him. Oops, that was a real customer. <laughs> I mean, come on, he did have a 3-0 account, which apparently is a big deal. I love that he like walks in there like, how many zeros are in your account number? I was thinking zeros at the end. He says three. I'm like, what, you got $50,000? Big deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, that's the stuff that Ludlum really does excel at, though. I, I mentioned this at Books and Nachos. So I'll bring it up here. He was not a spy. If it doesn't feel like good spy work, it's because Ludlum himself is not trained as an agent. He has never served in that way. He was a Marine for two years, but otherwise was just a ham actor and got into writing in midlife and sort of just knows what he knows by reading books. What he excels at is that, like, if he's going to know something about something, he's like, all right, how do banks work? And he did a lot of research <laughs> on banks and triple zero accounts and how to wire money to France and all that. All that stuff, you can feel he, it must be true because why else would you include it? I mean, if you wanted the story to flow, you wouldn't have him send money to France. Why wouldn't he just take his money now? I, I still don't understand that. Yeah, and that's along with the 17 establishing shots for every scene. It, it's just stuff like this that 
that does feel like filler. And I get what you were saying, Arnie. They got to hit that minute mark. But so much of this, I just, I don't care about. I, I'm, this got a great hook. Spy that doesn't remember who he is, had plastic surgery, can't even recognize his own face. And then they get into all these weird details that just slows it down. Right. It's going to be at that pace. And while I feel like that will make it a lesser film, I also recognize that it's honoring the the book by doing it almost scene by scene. And so I'm trying to look at it from that vantage point. I had my problems with the book, but I'm looking at this movie as if I love the book, how would I be experiencing this movie? Would I be pleased with all the choices of adaptation? And the answer is mixed. I think that while it might be satisfying to see it unfold in the way that it does, I don't like Chamberlain. I'm really not crazy about Charlie's Angels either. <laughs> and I'm still into this movie at this point when we do get to Jacqueline Smith, who really is tougher than Richard Chamberlain in every way. After all, she was an original angel. Her hair is smaller, but she still carries that with her. Here she's playing a, a Canadian economist, which will play into some of this bank stuff, I suppose. But I gotta ask about Bourne's plot here. When he takes a hostage while trying to flee, that's only gonna slow you down, and it's not like they care if they kill innocents. How is this helping him? I don't have a good answers for you. I can tell you why it's in the story, and that is because because this will become, unfathomably, a Stockholm Syndrome love story. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I didn't understand why he grabs her. She's going to spend time throughout the movie resisting at times, trying to get away, especially at the beginning. But yeah, I I don't know why he took her. It's a good question, right? Would you rather sit through an economy seminar or be kidnapped (laughs) by Richard Chamberlain? I don't know. Look, I had to take economics twice because I failed it the first time in college, so... Getting kidnapped might be better for me. And Jacqueline Smith is a well-known businesswoman. This is probably where she got her ideas for making clothes at Kmart and all the (laughs) wigs and all the... She has a lot of enterprises. I don't know if you know this, but the reason why you don't see her on TV much anymore is that she's really gone into business, like QVC style. She's like the original Olsen twins. (laughs) Not quite as posh as the Olsen twins there, Jacob. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she, she does other stuff now, and she's quite successful at it. But anyway, yeah, this was sort of her last it was five years past Angels. She had done a few TV miniseries. She had played Jackie O and got an Emmy nomination. I think that, you know, they would have seen her as age appropriate for Richard Chamberlain and right for their target audience. But I don't feel like she's right for Marie. And more to the point, I hated Marie in the book. So the fact that they're going to dwell on all these Marie scenes does nothing for me. I wish there was no Marie in the Born Identity. I tend to agree The stuff with her later on really slows down. Here, she's an interesting foil. She's a prisoner. I'm wondering again why he took her, and it does lead me to believe he might be an assassin if he's just going to grab some random brunette and drag her along on all these things. But hey, it does give us a chance for a gratuitous attempted rape. Yeah, this is ugly stuff. That was kind of shocking for television. I mean, that dude is like ripping her shirt open. Like, I I was... Shocked that they would show this on TV. In my notes, I've just referred to him always as Baldy Rapist. but And I never thought we'd see Baldy Rapist after the rape scene, but he actually comes back again and again and again. That's the problem. I don't know a lot of these characters' names, so it's hard to follow the action for me because I got to identify them by their looks. Yeah, I don't think that it's really important who they are. What we will eventually 
actually understand is that there is a whole network of people that work for Carlos. And so they can be doing random odd jobs, but watch out. The milkman is really plotting, you know, to kill the next president. I mean, that's that's the kind of conspiracy they're they're having here. And this is where things start getting muddled for me. So they all worked for Carlos because I a lot of this, I'm just trying to think back to that Matt Damon, Jason Bourne film to try to place things. And I remember like Treadstone, I think, had agents that they sent to get born. But these aren't from Treadstone. These are all from Carlos. One of the big distinctions is in the Matt Damon movies, Treadstone is the villain. In the book, Treadstone is who employs Jason Bourne. They are not the villain. The villain is strictly Carlos. And again, that was Carlos the Jackal, which everyone understood in the world was a villainous character. So they didn't have to do a whole lot to establish him. What they were playing off was is that no one could ever catch Carlos the Jackal. So we must have all these people hiding him, working for him, a, a vast network of conspirators. And so that's why we would believe that they would have bankers in Zurich that give him a phone call and are willing to pull out a pistol. I get confused as we go through this movie, who is working for who? Because the guys at Treadstone are out after Bourne thinking he's gone rogue and become an actual assassin instead of just the fake assassin they positioned him as. Carlos is after him. So I was confused who these people worked for. At the end, we do see Baldy Rapist working with Carlos. So this whole time through, these guys are Carlos's men after Bourne. Carlos somehow knew about this account because it's a Treadstone bank account. Correct. Please don't make me try to explain that. I cannot, <laughs> will not, never not. Silent pause says everything, Stuart. <laughs> yeah, just take it and run, please. That's, that is the answer. They're all in it together. And don't look back. You cannot look back. You can enjoy Ludlum in the moment, page by page. If you try to look back and see why things are, I'll never understand why a spy would say, you know, I need to remember my bank account. Let me surgically stick microfilm <laughs> into my thigh. It is $15 million. I'd want to remember it, too. Hey, what if you get amnesia while falling off a toy boat? You might <laughs> want to have that somewhere else. But you won't remember that it's in your thigh. Yeah, I'd, I'd go Memento and get it tattooed, but that's me. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, there's other ways. But anyway. But this is really where I start getting confused. Like, they're going to, Bourne and Marie, they're going to go see some guy in a wheelchair? What's that all about? Uh, he, in the book, is a Nazi. And what you will find out is that this is the shell that basically, and here's where it really gets confusing for me. Like, I, I literally can't understand this. But in the book, at least, and I'm not sure if it's true in the movie, this CIA operative never killed anybody. He just took credit for killing people. Correct. That's in this as well. He would set up people to be like, oh, you're paying me for a job, but it wasn't actually a job that he completed. And it seems like a smoke and mirrors that would be hard to keep up. But I don't know if like he like photobombed real assassinations, like <laughs> ran in really quick. It's like me. You know, over the corpse. But that is what we're supposed to understand. And these are people that he actually, or rather Treadstone, have used as part of the illusion that he is a well-paid assassin. And because he's an amnesiac, he actually believes he is an assassin. And each time he meets one of these characters, he thinks, oh man, I am such a horrible dude. Yeah, he has a shootout with this guy and shoots him in the throat. And later you'll find out that Carlos shoots people in the throat. So he starts thinking he's Carlos or something. It, oh, it's so confusing. Yeah, I watched the first hour of this 
three times. Ooh. <laughs> really? See, this is TV. They're supposed to repeat like the last 10 minutes after the commercial break. They don't hear. That's what I was expecting for them to do. So in watching it three times, what he's doing is following the money backwards. He went to a bank account, and then he went to a guy who gave him an envelope full of cash and a mission, and then he went further back to the legless guy who was giving them envelopes to the intermediate and he's really trying to follow the money and the missions back to the source what i don't get is why the legless guy decides you're asking too many questions they're gonna pay me a lot for your corpse i'm gonna shoot you again is it treadstone who's gonna pay for his corpse i'm not sure but he believes he's going to be paid why he believes that is because there's a rumor that they'll be paid if they call a phone number who set up that phone number I'm not sure myself. I think it's Treadstone. Thus, the man would kill and not get paid for it. Yeah, it's very confusing. But it could be Carlos, too. Because what's all that's really important, the impulse to watch this again and again to understand the fine details is absolutely the wrong one to have with Ludlum. It is to ride the wave, don't look back, and just stay focused on what they're saying, which is that this man is trying to confirm that he is an assassin who may actually be Carlos. I think that he actually thinks he is this Carlos for a while, and then eventually we will meet Carlos. He is actually hiding out at a church, masquerading as a priest, and we will have it confirmed that, no, there is a Carlos, and he is a rival assassin. And as far as riding that wave, I do like that development. I just... I wish there wasn't so much seafoam I had to get through. I wish I could just get a nice, clean pipeline to take into the shore with this. Because I do like a lot of the twists that, when I can't understand them, that I catch. That's the problem. You say, just go along with the ride and don't look back. But this is a plot-driven twist and turns movie the action in this sucks so if something's gonna work for you it's gotta be the intrigue and that means the plot has to make sense and that's why i watched the first hour three times is because i wanted to try to make sense of all of this i also then went back and rewatched other portions of this movie two and three times just to make sure i didn't miss anything which we will be getting to later on but i was completely able to follow the money and see these guys are attacking and here we're into basically an action film and it's as exciting as television can be you know they're in a foreign country there's all this going on there's people being shot someone jumps off a bridge that's action i don't call it don't call it action <laughs> call it intrigue that's a nicer word for it there isn't action here they don't have money for things to blow up these are real buildings they're not going to take them out this is people jumping around and kicking at real locations Call it action if you must, but I think it's just about intrigue. And again, I think if you look too hard, it really will not make a whole lot of sense for you. I mean, you could look at this also as a romance. Well, that's the problem is it turns into one. <laughs> and I don't mean like just like a love story. I mean a love story. I mean four and a half minutes of sex by a fireplace. You talk about that Stockholm Syndrome <laughs> romance. I do feel it like I don't know why Marie's going for this. She was just almost raped earlier. Yes, that's why. 
he came back to save her from the rapist. Thus, her way of paying him back is to drive him out of town. She didn't have to do that, but that's nice. And then, yes, to promptly fall in love with her. Which makes you ask, we need to be finding out who the hell she is. There's something wrong with Chicky. I think a lot of time has passed here, though, because they bandaged him up. He's starting to do a lot better. I think it's not the same night. I think it's a little while later when he says... You know, go home. It's the next day. Okay, it's hard to tell how much time passed. We (laughs) jumped around a little bit. We saw some people hunting born. Well, it might be a couple weeks. In the book, it was, to be fair, a couple weeks of hiding out with him. But with the running around Zurich was all in one day and driving him out and deciding to not attend her economics seminar. Maybe that was (laughs) the excuse. I mean, again, maybe that was the choice of like, I really don't want to sit through this lecture. I'm going to go off with Richard Chamberlain. Having seen the sex scene, I'd rather sit through an economics lecture. (laughs) Look, we're saying it's a sex scene. There's so much hugging. It is a hugging scene. (laughs) (laughs) What is with the bathing suit, the one-piece bathing suit she has under her clothes? Does she wear that every day? It's that bodysuit. That was a thing. I mean, it's a thing when you're on ABC television in primetime. I mean, she can't be nude. I mean, they have to do something. You can't show belly button on ABC primetime? Uh, maybe Jacqueline's very self-conscious about it. I I do not know. They There is no discussion in anything that I could find about this scene. But this is for the Thornbirds crowd. This These kinds of things happen in Thornbirds. It's what the fans of Richard Chamberlain would want to see him do. But also, I want to stress, it is in the book. This is not something they inserted for a supposed soccer mom audience. If you read the Ludlum spy espionage stuff, the story stops for pages and pages and pages <laughs> at a time for them to talk about how much they love each other again and again and again. Oh, it's so weird. I, I thought maybe it might be awkward. I know Richard Chamberlain came out eventually, but you're saying his career had a lot of these kind of scenes in them. This may be the scene that made him gay. I don't know. <laughs> Oh, boy. It, that actually would explain all the heat of the scene, you know? It's, oh, boy. It is it is painful. I've seen it three times, and it keeps getting worse every time I see it. <laughs> Mixed with the fact that he's got these broken knuckles as he's clutching her and having <laughs> visions of a woman and child burning in his head <laughs> afterwards. I'm like, wow, what a good lay. My wife is watching. She's like, was he fingering her? Was she on the rag and he fingered her? What is going on with his knuckles? Wow. Again, ABC TV, no. Your wife is dark, Jacob. I'm just going to say Oh, I know. I know. She was obviously seeking a different kind of entertainment than this is ready to provide. The born penetration. Yeah, she was seeking anything but this to be entertained by. I mean, this guy bruises so easily. He's like a damn pear or something like that. He's on blood thinners. You know, when you're that age, clots are common. Blood thinners, they make you bruise. When he falls on firewood, he bleeds for like three days afterwards from the (laughs) head. I mean... He does get head wounds easy. I mean, again, in the book, he was shot five times here. He was shot two. It just... uh, Yeah, the guy is just... I guess they do that to make it more believable or because Chamberlain isn't spry, but it is frustrating to to be told again and again, this is a hardened assassin and he can't even, you know, tackle firewood. <laughs> What's funny is he gets concussed, he gets shot, everything heals but those knuckles. Those knuckles are like permanent scars. He got them because they closed his ha- a car door on his hand. He's lucky that like the fingers even move. They say break his fingers. That might even 
amputate the fingers, but he's fine. He's not born. Fun fact, that actually happened to me, and I had no problem. I didn't even have marks on my knuckles. Well, it wasn't as hard as Baldy Rapist would slam them. Tried at 53, though. I just got lucky. They were in the right place. But, uh, yeah, I, you know, my point is, is this man is brittle, and we're supposed to be thinking him as James Bond. I mean... He'll repeatedly get hurt, repeatedly bleeding from the head. There's also repeated bank scenes in this film. Like, <laughs> really? We got to do this all over again? You said this author loved writing the technicalities of depositing and withdrawing your money. It shows. Yes, yes. And you know what? Here, I actually got a little excited because here was the one moment where it started to feel a little Hitchcock. Like, they actually move the camera a little bit. There's this, they're playing a game here where they're like, we have to get the money from the bank in Paris, mm -hmm. but we don't don't trust them so there's you know there's kind of fun cat and mouse at a phone booth and it just felt for like a half second like a hitchcock movie not like a good hitchcock movie but like <laughs> one of the ones he made in the late 70s right before he died that no one liked but like still had a little bit of his imprint on it and i'm again still thinking again not the greatest era of bond but some of those later roger moore bonds with the intrigue and all of this i'm having fun here this is actually reminding me of what i like about jason bourne this feels like like one of the scenes we might see Matt Damon engage in in one of the better movies. It's where they leave the cliffhanger, too. This is where night one ends, is that, oh my god, Jacqueline Smith is walking into a trap because the man that tried to rape her is showing up because the banker has called the number on the account. That basically, if anyone tries to access Jason Bourne's account, he calls a mysterious number and here comes assassins. Nothing says tune in Monday night like the possibility of seeing another attempted rape. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I, what is she trying to prove here? I know Farrah had that whole rape movie extremities. I, I don't know what's going on here. But it's uncomfortable. You agree, right? We don't want to see beautiful Jacqueline Suzanne constantly be thought of as someone that could be sexually assaulted. That is not fun. No, why is that in there? They say take her to the river and kill her. That I'm fine with, strangely, because she's a witness. Kill the witness. The fact that there's constant, you know, he tries to rape her, and then she just keeps going on, he tried to rape me. You saved me from rape i would have been raped rape 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 it doesn't fit a tv movie it is too serious for this type of film yeah ask robert ludlum these are all straight from the book and Ugh. they were honoring it but they shouldn't it is it takes away the sense of fun if this movie doesn't add up and it doesn't make sense, then we at least want to get swept up in the romance of it. And I cannot, when I keep thinking about, oh, well, Jacqueline may get assaulted again. Here it goes. It's it's gross. And I was shocked that this was the cliffhanger. I didn't, like, I wasn't expecting that all of a sudden to cut away to have the music sting there that, that told me, oh, I got to tune in tomorrow night. This is the one time I did rewind to rewatch. Like, why is this such a big deal? Because I was just like, oh, another bank scene glazing over. But I guess it's because what, what do you call him? Baldy McRape face shows up again. <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> yeah, Koenig is, I think, his name, but hey, whatever. Yeah, and while we're talking about the music stings and the end credits music. Oh, let's not talk about this music. This music's bad. What are you talking about? This Emmy-nominated music. The movie was up for two Emmys. Editing, which is impossible <laughs> to believe. And, yes, this horrible music was considered award-worthy for television. 
Foundation. It sounds like leftovers from Fantasy Island Be Real. It is terrible stuff. And I, you know what? It may not be terrible. It's a terrible fit. It is so over-the-top melodramatic that it takes scenes that don't have melodrama. Instead of pumping them up, it just makes you wonder, what the hell? They're just walking into a bank. Why are you making <laughs> such a fanfare out of this? The romance scene music is absolutely abhorrent. I mean, everything about that romance scene, the hugging scene, is just wrong down to the music. Well, the dialogue is worse still than the music. Again, where do you lay all the blame? Is it the performance? Is it the book? Is it the music? Oh, there's plenty to go around. Richard Chamberlain. So much. But... You know what? I'm still somewhat into it when we get to the end of the first night. I'm starting to wane a little bit. And in fact, the reason I watched the first hour three times is because two of those three times, I kind of lost interest after an hour and I'd find myself like my mind wandered or I'd pick up a phone and multitask and be like, damn, I must watch this in one sitting. I'm not going to rewind and just start it where I trailed off. I'm going to start over. Oh, oh, Arnie, no. Just don't do that again. Promise me <laughs> if we ever do a TV movie again, push through. Don't look back. Yeah, I decided to watch this as a TV movie, and if I missed something, I missed it. Moving on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> nope, I, that's this thing about me. I watched The Stand in one sitting, going, you know, potty breaks in between the episodes, but The Stand all one day, McGarris mm. is shining all at once. I feel like I have to watch these with a full attention movie, and if my mind wanders, I'm going to start over so I get the full pacing experience. But my God, it was hard. It was so damn hard. I think if your mind's wandering, it's telling you plenty about the pacing. Yeah, well... You might have done it with the first night, but I'm willing to bet you couldn't do it with the second night. Because I agree, it is what it is. I don't think it's particularly gripping filmmaking that we're seeing here. But if you're telling me they're adapting Born Identity for ABC television in 1988, that first night feels like what I would expect. Night two goes straight into the toilet. Or do a dress shop. I agree. At the end of night one, I would have turned into night two. And when night one ended, I'm like, you know, this is probably a fine recommend for TV. You know, we were great on a curve for TV. Going into night two, I was ready to, yeah, if it stays this quality, it'll get a green. Apparently they realized night two doesn't have to be as good as night one because you're not trying to bring people back. You've already got them. <laughs> and they're still watching that space cop show anyway, so fuck them. <laughs> I wish I was watching it. <laughs> I would rather do an Alien Nation TV retrospective than continue, but we must. Yeah, let's wrap it up here. We won't dwell for each little thing that Bourne stumbles into, but what you're seeing here, what you're supposed to be seeing is Bourne, part of the reason why he had plastic surgery is because he's supposed to have a face that can be easily disguised, and we're going to see him put on special sunglasses and hats that make him, yeah, be able to <laughs> sneak into fashion shops. Well, the face that's disguised, he is made to look like the real Jason Bourne. That's what the surgery did. I don't know what he, this guy looked like before. Well, that's the book rewrite. No, this is this is in the TV series. Yeah, the TV series states that. That's what I'm saying. That was changed for this movie. Okay. They rewrote the book. In the book, he is Jason Bourne, and they turned him into a generic-looking person. They were like, any features you have that'll stand out, that make people see you and think, oh, I know that guy, chop him off. So we're going to get the most generic looking man we can. I think they should have kept it that way. Maybe they wanted to change it so that 
He's even less dangerous and more palpable for TV audiences, but I think that it's way too confusing that there is a real Jason Bourne, and he enjoyed killing anything from rats to humans just for the fun of it and watching it die, and so they killed the real Jason Bourne and turned this guy into Jason Bourne, and then made him think he was an assassin, and made him think he's also Carlos. I understand the intrigue of amnesia, but there's a point at which you're just confused. Yeah, and this is some of this is the condensing that they had to do. I think in many cases, again, the screenwriter made the right choice. It's a simpler answer, because all of what you just described also happened in the book. They didn't plastic surgery him to make him look like the other guy, but there was another guy named Jason Bourne whose identity that he took, and he killed, and... Yeah, it is convoluted. Again, you can join me at Books and Nachos. I'll go into it a little bit more, but I don't think that if I had hours to go through, I would be able to talk about every nuance of the story. And I think the screenwriter just said, look, let's just keep it simple, and that's what we'll do. And so this is the simple version. You guys are saying it's confusing, but I'm here to tell you it's much more concise. Yeah, no, th especially this second night is where I just lose all set. Like, when he goes to a dress store, why? Like, I don't know why certain scenes are here. It just seems so bizarre. It's 100 pages in the book, and if you join me at Books and Nachos, I'll go into exactly why they chose to make that the hideout for Carlos. But why this story is telling us is because the banker was told he must call the phone number if Bourne tries to collect his money, and that phone number leads to Bergeron's fashion house. And working there is Carlos's longtime lo lover since 13, we're told. His lifelong love is working at that dress shop and married to a very powerful French general. Oh, Okay. Okay, I did not realize that was the same person. I didn't either. I really didn't, because when we <laughs> find her as a wife, she's either in far shots or dead. She's face down in the mattress, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that was the same one, and this is where my brain gave up. I couldn't follow it anymore when we got to the dress shop. I'm like, he's assuming all these different identities. Now he's assuming the identity of a rich husband who wants to buy $12,000 in dresses for his wife, only to happen to pull out the board that underneath of it has another phone number. And he's just going through so many machinations. And like you've repeatedly said in television it's supposed to tell you before and after the commercial break here it's not and so yeah at this point is when i tried to just go with the ride but it's so hard because it's supposed to be intriguing it's supposed to be a pot boiler i just i need to follow what happens and i still can't like let's get to the asian people he keeps having <laughs> flashes like Jacqueline is combing her hair and he, she flashes to an Asian woman combing her hair and he keeps seeing them in his memory. Do we ever know who the hell they are? We know that Carlos killed them. By the end, I assume it's his wife and son, but it never, I don't think it ever says that. I don't know that you need to know. I think the point is he's haunted by images of Vietnam or, or Asian conflict in which women and children are dying. If you read the book, it's very clearly that in his former life, before he ever took on the Jason Bourne identity, he was married to these people and they were killed by unknown assassins, a loose string that is never tied up. So the screenwriter's just like, 
I'm not going to get into that. I'll just I'll just show that it's something horrible that happened in the past. And it's something that Carlos did, but that he suspects he might have done. But how does he even know these people? And why is Carlos killing random Vietnamese? I took him as a political assassin. Yes. Let's get into who Carlos is, according to this movie and the book. Carlos in this movie is Europe's greatest hired hitman. And so what the threat of Jason Bourne is, is that he is about to be displaced. You know, he thought he was Debbie Gibson and then here comes Tiffany to knock him off of the pop charts and he wants to be back on top. So he is going to kill Jason Bourne so that people can't call Jason Bourne when they want to kill Leland, who was the guy that died in France that Carlos did kill, but Jason Bourne got the credit for. Sort of. Huh? Oh, okay. I think I followed that. <laughs> I couldn't follow what you said any more than the movie. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's not in the movie? Okay. I got it in bits and pieces. It's kind of in the movie. Yeah. Okay. I was able to piece that together. Yeah. Basically, the what you should understand, if nothing else, the only thing that is important is that Carlos wants Jason Bourne dead for moving in on his action. Yes, I got that. And that is what he is trying to do. And so what he is going to do with his network of conspirators that reach from fashion houses in France to banks in Zurich is to take fingerprints from a glass of water that Jason was drinking from and transpose those fingerprints onto a glass in New York at the Treadstone headquarters after those people are killed, thereby proving that Jason Bourne has gone rogue and is killing his old partners and is acting without CIA authority and needs to be taken out. Yeah, I had to remember about night one where we see them actually get the fingerprints and are like, we got them. That's going to take a long time to pay off. I didn't realize Treadstone was in New York. I was just so confused when later on they're like, oh no, they're in New York. Like, do they establish that? There's just so much globe hopping around in this film. It gets very confusing. No, I think that is set up. I did catch that that was New York. What I didn't catch, because we're introduced to all the Treadstone people in one scene. Yeah, too many people. I have no idea who they are. Mm-hmm. They're talking about how they were they're planted a story to frame Marie as being an accomplice as the hopes of calling Jason Bourne in. And when he doesn't come, that there's some internal strife. They discuss this literally over tea about yeah. whether or not to have him killed. That's why I thought it was in Europe still, they're drinking <laughs> tea. Yeah, this don't feel like New Yorkers. Where's the bagels? And so there's a military general, there's a guy in a bow tie, there's a whole bunch of people around discussing it, including the one who is most important, David Abbott, played by... Donald Moffat and his awesome eyebrows. <laughs> they really are amazing. They should get their own screen credit. <laughs> I think at certain times they do. I mean, this guy's been in a ton of stuff, never trims those eyebrows. But there's one guy in there who's later going to go back and kill all the rest. He's not Carlos, right? No, he works for Carlos. That is an agent of Carlos. Again, he got the fingerprints from Switzerland and brought them to New York so that they could be put on a glass so that when people come in and say, oh my God, everyone here was killed, let's dust for prints, the only print that they're going to find is Richard Chamberlain's. Okay, so he works for Carlos. I was, again, pretty confused by him 
and the old dude coming in and shooting everybody, but Abbott gets out the back in the alleyway. And what is this Treadstone 71 in this film? Again, I'm thinking Matt Damon Mm -hmm. in some black ops group. I don't understand Treadstone 71 here. It's a a room full of old guys, as far as I can tell. It is, and in this rewrite, the things that have been changed from the book are that Treadstone is run by... Yeah, Richard Chamberlain's childhood best friend. And so that he just kind of helped this guy become a spy for Treadstone. Yeah, that seems really weird. You know, we went from fishing to like putting a rifle in your hand. But don't worry, you're not really going to kill anyone. We're just going to create the illusion that you're killing people because that will draw Carlos out from hiding. Jason Bourne is fake. And we're going to change your face forever so that we can pull this off. Yes, because there was another guy who may or may have not worked for Treadstone. According to this movie, it has a different story in the book. And we had to kill him and get someone that is compliant, which is Richard Chamberlain. So that makes sense. Yes, even though it doesn't, it, it, it comes and goes in a movie that I agree has too many characters. What could be established with one character, they just, I feel like that they keep meeting out details about the Bourne identity through all these other characters that we have not only the woman at the fashion house, but some guy that works there too that used to work to be in his platoon. And, you know, there's the French general who, you know, his son was assassinated by Carlos and whose Carlos's lover is now planted herself as his wife so that she can do manipulative things. Again, we're just supposed to understand this is a world where Carlos controls everybody. That, again, you cannot trust your mailman. You know, I was checking out of this film when they started really getting into Treadstone. I couldn't follow all the players It was not being made clear in dialogue. They did not make this really understandable for those who want to follow the plot and haven't read the book. But when they bring in this French general, all of a sudden, I'm back in it. I like this French general. He talks like my father. He's overly dramatic (laughs) like my father. I mean, the way he just goes about old men marry young women and if they have an affair when they have an affair i'm like my god it's my father speaking from beyond (laughs) yeah and it's all about his honor too once he finds out that his wife has been you know in cahoots with carlos even though chamberlain is like look we need her alive i need to question her he's like no i have to kill her for my honor well yeah she's been selling state secrets and since before their wedding he was cuckolded by carlos who'd been screwing her since he was 13 but it's france so it's okay that's not too young right yeah no problems there (laughs) but i'm brought back in by this general and very disappointed that he doesn't actually do more yeah he has a, a lot again every character has a lot more in the book they're really having to shorten everyone's scenes here in night two out of necessity if they're going to keep all the characters they can only give them so much screen time but yeah i think that we could have we could have skipped the fashion house entirely and just gotten here in some contrivance and it would have helped everything to have less characters make no mistake we got here through some contrivance it was yeah. just too complex a contrivance <laughs> yeah yeah all that fashion stuff should have been cut it should have been cut from the book if you ask me but they needed to have the link that the general's wife worked at the fashion house and got called from the bank so there it is circle closed 
Sort of. I, I feel like, as confused as I've been most of this film, we get to this meeting between Abbott and Bourne at a graveyard. I do feel like I learned something here because it's all just in the dialogue. It's not craftily told to us, but I'm glad they just come out and tell us something for once. Well, it's the end, after all. I mean, there's only 20 minutes left. There's still a lot more <laughs> to go, I feel like. Yeah, well, he went to the graveyard to... What, meet some Treadstone people who try to kill him? Because everywhere he goes now, there's some gunfire. Yeah, you have to keep in mind that nobody trusts Chamberlain at this point. His own people thought he went rogue, and when he killed everyone in Treadstone but Abbott, they knew he went rogue. There's this other General Conklin who's really like, I'm going to get him. Abbott, because he was childhood friends with this other guy, he's like, I'll give him a chance. But yes, more or less... They want confirmation that Jason Bourne has gone AWOL and is and, and are willing to kill him because of that. Meanwhile, Carlos, again, knows everyone from a church priest to a guy that answers phones at the fashion house. And we've had a lot of shootouts and, you know, running around with them as well. Bourne can trust no one but Jacqueline Smith, basically. So are we not to believe Abbott then when he says, oh, you're actually David Webb and I raised you and you were able to cast that line, I don't know, under a tree? I guess that's fly fishing or something. <laughs> hey, Donald Moffat and his eyebrows do not lie. <laughs> well, what we see here is the real killer of the Treadstone people pops out and shoots Conklin and mortally wounds Abbott as well. Abbott's dying when he comes to this realization. He's like, oh, just Jason Bourne, why didn't you call home? And he's like, oh, I got shot and lost my memory. Oh, okay, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> Let me tell you who you are. Let me remind you of our fishing trips and how I coerced you into becoming a spy with plastic surgery and all this. But what he never says, and I watched this graveyard scene three times as well, he never <laughs> says who those Asians were. Yeah. Well, he's also going to tell Bourne to go back to his home, go back to Treadstone. And he'll learn everything there. I don't feel like he does. Like, when we get to Treadstone, there's movers there taking everything away. It gives David Webb, Jason Bourne, whatever you want to call Richard Chamberlain at this point. He has many names in the book. He is going to impersonate a furniture mover because, of course, they have to clear out Treadstone because everyone's dead there now. Chamberlain's best acting this entire movie yes. is when he's pretending <laughs> to be a furniture mover who's not too bright and was sent down to the job trying to get as the foreman he needs to work is the first time I feel Chamberlain giving a performance. He actually reminds me a little bit of Johnny Knoxville in The Ringer, but... <laughs> Are these compliments? Are you serious? <laughs> I am dead serious. I am dead serious. Oh, okay, because you're laughing and he's so terrible. All right. I did like his performance as a working class schlub here. Wow. And his accent. I like his accent. It's funny. I mean, it's all comedic to me, but it's the best thing he's done in two nights. Yeah, but it's not a comedic performance, and I think it's quite <laughs> terrible. Again, I wish I believed him in this moment, but you're saying it's so outrageously bad that it's entertaining you. So yes. I guess that is a silver lining to the fact that this has completely gone off the rails. But no, this is <laughs> this is not good. Don't give people the impression that this is really good stuff here, that he's an excellent incognito furniture mover who is 
basically here because he knows this is where his identity is kept and also where Carlos is finally going to come out of hiding to take him out. He knows he's coming for Treadstone and he personally, not any of his hundreds of minions, are going to be there and shoot. And of course it triggers flashbacks. We don't actually see him kill the woman and child in Asia, but I believe it's established that Carlos was in his platoon and doing really bad stuff with that at that time. That anything bad happening to those to that woman and child is the fault of Carlos and not because of David Webb, Jason Bourne. How did Carlos follow him there? I mean, he has a network, right? He knows where Treadstone's office is at this point. One of his minions infiltrated it. And right. he knows that Bourne would go there because he wants to know all the secret files about who he really was. Yeah, he knows Abbott has come over to Europe and told him stuff because... He's got people everywhere. Yeah, exactly. He just, you know, he heard it through the grapevine. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> yeah. I do feel like this is where I get a sense that that Asian woman and child were wife and child to Jason Bourne, David Webb, whatever his name is. You know, he's got this fight with Carlos. Like all the other action scenes, it's not that great. I do kind of like when he throws that flare in the room. The lighting's kind of cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. But... We're stretching, but... Look, I'll give it compliments when I can. You really are. It's like, that flare was incredible. I mean... Look, I dare you to give it a better compliment. <laughs> it, it sets a mood. I give you... They're trying here in the end to give a dramatic... Not only is he fighting his mortal enemy and winning, but he's losing his mind and he's in danger of losing whatever he had learned about himself by relapsing and going into PTSD flashback. You fear, even after he knocked Carlos off the staircase, that he's just going to kill everyone in the room and might have if Charlie's Angels hadn't sauntered in and said, David, I love you. But when he says they're dead, when he's like totally lost, it like that that is what told me okay that was probably his wife and child then i'll admit that after watching this movie i went to the wiki for the movie and it basically said it's based on the book so i then went to the wiki on the book and learned that they were his wife and child i didn't get that from this movie it makes no sense why would carlos kill his wife and child before he was impersonating Jason Bourne. Why is he killing these random Vietnamese people? Why is David Webb married to this woman and having this child? Is he living in Vietnam at the time? <laughs> well, I don't know that they really established that that is the Vietnam War. It is in Asia, but we don't know when Carlos and Jason Bourne slash David Webb had this exchange. And in all of this, the freaky looking mofo who shot born on the boat at the beginning do we ever see him again and know why he was shot on a boat no the boat blew up why though uh are you asking me what's in the book are you asking me about this movie this movie says nothing well there's nothing in the movie i want to establish that there is nothing in the movie that explains why that boat blows up right most things exist here to perpetuate the motion and not because there's any logical reason that they would be happening and I'm not sure that that's vastly different from the book, although it sure takes a lot longer to figure that out. I feel like a lot of things in the book never are clear to me, but more reasoning is given to what you're asking for. That basically it had a lot to do with that Leland character that they heard the news reports about being assassinated, that that was the fallout of Leland was that he was followed to that boat and shot at. Yeah, it's... 
vague and I wish it would come back around and I know the boat blew up but Borm survived it the other guy could have jumped off he looked kind of like Jaws again from Bond so I was kind of hoping he'd make a return I mean if Baldy McRapeface can keep showing up I figured <laughs> this other guy could too but no when this whole thing comes to an end I don't know why Carlos finally showed himself the most disappointing thing is that Carlos wasn't embedded in Treadstone I thought for sure that it was going to be like the Scooby-Doo you're Carlos kind of moment but no carlos is just some guy who we've never seen before and he's going to show up at the end for a fairly cheap shootout well dare i say it but that wouldn't make any sense arnie (laughs) i mean what we have is the epitome of logic lest i try and and bring that in but we need to believe that treadstone is trying to get carlos if carlos were running treadstone why would he be sanctioning a man to be surgically changed to be the man trying to get him that that wouldn't really make sense but you know what a lot doesn't make sense and why not twist it some more he has men in treadstone so why couldn't one of the defectors in treadstone one of the lower ranking ones be appearing to go along with his bosses but using treadstone intel to be the super assassin i mean here's what i would say it's really unfortunate that night two didn't give up the mystery i understand they wanted to tease out who is jason born through the story but they really needed to start night two with explaining all of this that comes very rushed at the end just saying it will no longer be a mystery we'll tell everyone tuning in on night two everything that richard chamberlain has yet to learn about himself and then we could really understand those connections and just focus on the climactic battle but no because they chose to follow the format of the book and scene by scene really go there it becomes very incoherent and clunky even more so than what was in the book and more to the point i feel that they do tell us this stuff as night two goes on and then later they'll change what they told us because half the stuff that they reveal was previously revealed by somebody else maybe jason Bourne didn't hear it but between our cuts to treadstone back at the office and everything we're hearing a lot of this first being told about Jason Bourne, then being told to Jason Bourne, but with a slight twist. So you're not hearing the same thing twice. The entire end reveal is like a bad game of telephone. Well, you know, then we're not confused, right? You guys get it all. You you understand everything there is about the Bourne identity. Clear as mud. So Jacob Stewart, do you recommend this TV miniseries, The Bourne Identity? Jacob. I'll say this. I get what Stuart's saying when you're supposed to just kind of ride the wave and go for this ride and enjoy the spying and the intrigue because <laughs> the action really isn't there. I feel like that's what I did when I saw the original Matt Damon Jason Bourne. I've only seen that once in theaters and I remember at times being confused, but I was entertained by that. We'll see when we revisit it next week. But this one gets... Ooh, there's a lot of bumps, and there's just so much. It's like wave after wave after wave pounding you. It's it's hard to just ride it because so much is thrown at you. I finally just threw up my arms, and, and I give up, and I drown in this muddled mess of a film, which, look, there's not a lot of great acting to be entertained by. There's not a lot of great plot developments. It's got a good hook. That's it, really, that, oh, a spy who doesn't remember who he is, and, you know, he, he might be an assassin. He might be a spy trying to get that assassin. Who knows? Like... But that 
just gets washed out by everything else in this film. So it's a not recommend. Stuart. Well, here's what I have to say. It is a decent adaptation of the novel. So I won't read the novel. <laughs> yeah, that it, the, a lot of these problems you're talking about are things that are systemic with the source material that they so diligently wanted to honor. And so by making that choice, you're only going to get so much. You know, would this have been better if it's not a TV movie? Well, of course. You know, who would they have gotten? Tom Cruise, maybe, 1988. If they made it just a feature film, big budget, they would have streamlined a lot of this and just made it a Tom Cruise action movie. Would that have been better? Yes, but it wouldn't have been Ludlum's born identity. What I appreciate is that we have filmmakers attempting to dramatize the difficult-to-follow Robert Ludlum novel and kind of proving to me that there was a lot about it that didn't really make any sense and that you can only enjoy it as sort of a lark and a European travelogue that takes you all over with a romantic partner and various moments of chasing. Why it won't be recommendable for that reason alone is because Chamberlain is just no good and the filmmaking is just so pedestrian. There's just nothing exciting that's ever happening on screen. And so, yeah, even if you love the book and are satisfied that they're bringing that book to the screen in a decent way, and I don't think I had the confusion you guys did because I had read the book before I saw this miniseries, I still think it's just an underwhelming dramatization that you just won't get into the story because of bad casting and boring direction. So it is a not recommend, but I think I'm kinder to it than maybe you guys are. I feel like Jason Bourne in that I have amnesia about this film's plot, and I watched it today. A couple times, apparently. We're recording this on Wednesday. I tried watching it Sunday, tried again Monday, watched it all on Wednesday, and it's just... I can't tell you what happened, and that's a problem for me because the action isn't good. The acting is downright terrible. This music, this thing is just 80s cheese fest. It is the worst of 80s television. You say it was nominated for an Emmy. Yeah, but look what it was up against. So I am not too complimentary of it beyond that they filmed on location. But if the plot had been there, if they'd streamlined it a little, because what you can get in a book is very different than what you can get in a movie. How you absorb information in a book is very different than how you absorb it in a movie. Although it is still, the onus is on the author to remind you of certain things. If you see a character on page 30 who's going to come back on page 450, then they have to at least make sure you remember why they were on page 30. But here, by trying to hew so closely and yet soften it for television by making him not really the killer Jason Bourne, adding another layer of complexity, no, I mean, it, it, it washed over me. I recommend it as perfectly fine television to have on in the background and you just want to look up if you like Richard Chamberlain and want to see him shirtless with all his hair. Some hot hugging action. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and if you want to see him throw some fake punches with fake bruised knuckles. But as trying to watch this as a movie, it's 
one of the hardest times I've had for now playing in a long time. It's a strong not recommend. And what's really funny to me is I have another amnesia story about Jason Bourne that I'll be telling when we review next week's movie, the real Bourne identity film. <laughs> I imagine you're going to have a little bit easier time following it or at least getting invested in the world that it's going to present. I'm looking forward to it. I have not seen it since it came out in movie theaters. So it'll be my first time coming back. I'm also wondering if this movie is any less amnesiac than the movie we're covering Friday on our donation drive. Silver level donation. We're getting to God help us. Roland Emmerich's Independence Day. What are you talking about amnesiac? I watch that thing every year on Independence <laughs> Day. Every year since 1996. Then I expect you to have answers for all of my questions. <laughs> I have qu answers for all of it. I've seen the theatrical edition, the extended edition. I mean, I'm watching it for like my 35th time for this review. Wow. I'm so looking forward to your tutelage. I think you will, your scholarly <laughs> approach will help me appreciate that more. I got a lot of questions. Always have, and we'll be covering it Friday. It's funny. We'll be roles reversed come Friday, but I do hope listeners can join us. It is part of our silver level donation. It's the Will Smith Saves the World of Men in Black 1 through 3, then Independence Day, and... Ending with the Smithless Independence Day resurgence. And we'll go into why Smith isn't in that sequel, too. I got those answers. But it's for our donors who help support our show and enable us to do the podcast we do week after week after week. Putting out well over 50 free shows a year. What's free for you to listen to isn't free for us to make. And we rely on your support. We're a crowdfunded show and without listener support, we can't continue. If you want to go $25 or more, last week we ended our 1986 sci-fi series, six movies from 1986, starting with Critters, ending with Night of the Creeps, and in between, Space Camp, Big Trouble in Little China, Labyrinth, and Invaders from Mars. And then, in just a couple weeks, for those who donate $35 or more, our platinum donation, Ghostbusters, and I gotta say... That second Ghostbusters trailer wasn't as bad as the first Ghostbusters trailer. <laughs> well, that is a backhanded compliment. Uh, yes. We'll see. I mean, I haven't seen Bridesmaids, but I almost feel like it's a continuation of that as much as it is the Bill Murray quartet from the 80s. But we are covering that movie, Ghostbusters 2. I'll probably watch Bridesmaids, and we'll talk about it when we get to Ghostbusters 2016. Hey, Bridesmaids, I'll give it a recommend. I watched it. I've seen that, too. Maybe we'll do that as a bonus <laughs> if Stuart watches it. We got a lot to discuss and it sounds like this one's going to be a contentious one. A lot of people are complaining, but I cross my fingers, hope for the best. And I hope all of our listeners are able to join us. So Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until next week, this is where it started for us. And this is where it ends. Do you remember now? Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Born Retrospective Series. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Congratulations, soldier. Training is over. 
Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another newborn movie review leading up to this summer's new installment. You talk about this stuff like you read it in a book. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss the Jason Bourne movies with other listeners. Everyone signs in and out. This is a serious place, serious work. It's not just to come in whenever you like. You're right. You're right. We didn't sign in. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. Send them in to follow. Tell them to keep their distance. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other movie series, including The Fast and the Furious, Mission Impossible, Star Trek, Terminator, Predator, and many more. You think that Jason Bourne was the whole story? Sorry, there's a lot more going on here. Treadstone was just the tip of the iceberg. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. That was a D-track team we sent in there. I don't know what that means. It means they're good at what they do. If you want even more Now Playing reviews, place your order now for the first Now Playing book, Underrated Movies We Recommend. Get reviews of 125 films our hosts love. Now, two years we're scribbling in that notebook. You can order the book by clicking the banner at the top of our homepage. Read, David, read. Everything you can get your hands on. I thought maybe we could help each other. How's that? Support from listeners like you. Help keep now playing operating. What's this? Well, it's what money I've got. It isn't much, but it's a start. I don't need it, you do. Anyway, I'm stuck with you now. I've got an investment in you. <laughs> you can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. I don't suppose it'll do me much good to cry for help, huh? Not much. You can also show your love of Now Playing by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available on our homepage. Get in the store. There's someone on your tail. Get in the store. Now Playing's Born Retrospective series is edited by Heath and Arnie. I told you we'd clean this up. It will be clean. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. Well, why don't you go upstairs and book a conference room? Maybe you can talk him to death. Now Playing is not affiliated with the makers or copyright holders of this film. The Jason Bourne films are the property of Universal Studios and no infringement is intended. What is he doing? Is it a game? Is he warning us? Is it a threat? The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. Do you really expect me to believe that? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> I can't believe it myself. How could I expect you to? The insanity is, it's the truth. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't think that's a decision you can make. Jason Bourne is dead. You hear me? He drowned two weeks ago. You're gonna go tell him that Jason Bourne is dead, you understand? Where are you gonna go? I swear to God, if I even feel somebody behind me, there is no measure to how fast and how hard I will bring this fight to your doorstep. I'm on my own side now. So Bourne tried to show up, Carlos, 
Or as I have in my notes, Suborny tried to show up Carlo. <laughs> I never knew that Marcus from Raiders was also the butler from Trading Places until this moment. I still don't know that. I've never seen Trading Places. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, you're missing a classic. I hear that. I'm, I'm not even kidding. We need to do that Eddie Murphy series someday, or at least Eddie Murphy 80s. <laughs> You watch your mouth there, an Eddie Murphy series. Norbit, yeah. Pshaw, I dare you. <laughs> I said Eddie Murphy 80s, I corrected it. <laughs> I dare you. I'm actually more excited for him than I am for, uh, what's his name? <laughs> Chamberlain. Richard, Richard Chamberlain. It's so hard because it's supposed to be intriguing. It's supposed to be a plot boiler. And uh, it's supposed to be a pot boiler with a... It is a plot boiler. <laughs> <laughs> I just... <laughs> Movies from 1986, starting with Critters, ending with Night of the Creeps, and in between, Space Camp, Big Trouble in Little China, Labyrinth, and Invaders from Mars. You still can't remember The Order, can you? <laughs> <laughs> no. I, I remembered all six movies, which is better than most days. Yeah, no, I was impressed with that. Golf clap for that. Oh!